This is an ABC podcast. Hilary Harper here. Great to be with you. I want you to imagine opening your fridge and your cupboards and just putting 14% of your food straight in the bin. No one in their right mind would do that now with food prices the way they are lately. And yet, effectively, that is what's happening across our food supply system because we're a bit confused about preventing food waste. And it turns out, too, that the way food is packaged doesn't help. More on that in a moment on Life Matters from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. A new study has uncovered what people are confused about when it comes to food waste. Quite a bit, it turns out. It also found that food waste is more important than a lot of us think. I'm wondering if there are steps that you've taken to reduce food waste at your place. Associate Professor Lucas Parker from RMIT is a co-researcher and author on the study from the Fight Food Waste Cooperative Research Centre. Lucas, you've really nailed your colours to the flag there with that (laughs) CRC title, haven't you? Yes, yeah, that's the most important thing that we're considering about here and what we're wanting to push is a bit more of a nuanced conversation about where our waste is and particularly about food waste. Why? Why is it such a big problem environmentally? Well, food waste is a huge problem in Australia. About 7.5 million tonnes of food are wasted every single year. That works out to about 300 kilos per person. And when you think about that, that's about three to five times our own body weight each year that goes into the bin. That food that, that comes to our house goes through refrigeration, it gets goes through all of the uh, transportation, it's got water and fertiliser, and if we're thinking about all of those things, we have a real challenge. So there's a lot of energy inputs that are just being basically thrown into thin air. Yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. So are some foods more likely to end up in waste than others? I mean, I, I go straight to the squishy things, but is it just those? Um, look, there, there's no absolute pattern, but what we can see is that it tends to be the food that we see that are perishable, and it's also the things that we tend to bulk buy. The things that we get lots of, we then tend to throw away some of that stuff when we don't actually use it or get sick or bored of it. So is that, does that include the dry goods that we buy in bulk? It can also be dry goods, and dry goods are, are, are one of those things that we can throw out sometimes because we actually see the use by date or we see the the best before date and we think oh we better throw it out when it's out there and we we end up throwing away a whole bunch of water and electricity and fuel that goes into that. Yep, I bought that big bag of chickpeas thinking I would make a lot of hummus and I did not. So how big a problem is food waste globally? I know that the UN has some sustainable development goals, which gives us an indication of how seriously they're taking it. Yeah, well, it's a really important one. And the Australian government has uh, subscribed to this and we're focused on uh, eliminating around 50% of waste by 2030. So at the moment, we've got a huge target. um, And that is really important because we're actually thinking about food in, a, in an international context, we actually have enough food in the world to be able to feed everybody. But at the moment, we're not distributing it properly and we're wasting a lot of it. And that's what we're wanting to do. I've been hearing that statistic for about 30 years now, that mm-hmm. we've got enough food, but it's going to the wrong places. Yes, that is. And, and, it's, and it's constantly the problem that we're facing here, particularly when we're looking at the way that we, we tend to see food and we, we're particularly in the, where the cost of living is at this particular point in time, we're, we're buying more because we're trying to save money by buying in bulk. And by doing that, we unintentionally throw, have to throw away some of it when we're not actually using it all. 
How are you going at home? How easy are you finding it to preserve food, to make sure that you don't waste it while still, you know, dealing with the cost of living issues? Associate Professor Lucas Parker is our guest. He's from RMIT, co-researcher and author on this new study from the Fight Food Waste Cooperative Research Centre that had, I thought, some pretty surprising findings. Um, Your study showed that people think that the packaging is a bigger problem than the food waste. How wrong are we? Well, it is a big problem, and I don't want to diminish that problem. Plastics, particularly single-use plastics, are a real problem because we look at all of the uh, energy that's involved in that and all of the uh, the fossil fuels that are involved in that. But food waste is equally a problem. And when we think about it, we've spent so much time trying to reduce our, our packaging, it can actually have an impact on the food that we actually throw out. And we don't want to be we won't don't want to unintentionally have to throw out food because it's not actually being looked after or stored or protected or brought to us in a safe way. So we want to kind of work on two fronts. The, the packaging and the food waste. So what does food waste include? I mean, I, people think of, you know, the plate scrapings and mm. the dodgy veggies in the bottom of the crisper. Are there other things we should be taking into account? Well, we, we're, we're talking about the full range of food. So our study has looked at from bread through to eggs, through to milk, through to all of those different types of various uh, types of foods. Um, one of those things that we are finding overall, particularly with the rollout of food organic waste bins across the country in many different municipalities, Municipalities, what we're seeing is that people see, well, they, they, they're they trying to do the right thing and, and consumers try to do the right thing. They put put whatever they've wasted in terms of food into the bin because or the, 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 the organics bin. And they, that is definitely better than putting it in the regular waste bin. But in the end, what you're doing is you're still throwing away food that probably should have been eaten. And that that's that real challenge that we're facing here. So all those energy inputs from the, the growing, the water pumping, the greenhouse. Refrigeration. Yeah, the keeping it at the right temperature, the transport, the storage, all that goes out the window and you don't get as much benefit it from Absolutely. the composting. Absolutely. And then, then there's the greenhouse of the grasses that come across from that. Okay, that's a little slap in the face, I have to say, because you do tend to feel good, don't you? It's like, ah, I'm retrieving some of this value. And, and look, and part of that thing is, yeah, it is, and it is good, and I, and, I, and I don't want to discourage people from using organics waste bins because they're really an important part of the chain, but they're the, the backup plan that we should be having here. The first plan that we should be doing is looking at ways that we can reduce our food, and that is reducing the amount we purchase to start off with and looking at what is reasonable, and maybe for many people that is purchasing more regularly rather than the weekly shop. And that's a real challenge for a lot of people where you've got to transport or you've got to get to a supermarket which may not be really close by to you and you've got to balance a whole bunch of things. So when we're looking at that food waste, it's actually not just thinking about what we're throwing out, it's also looking at what we purchase and what we're bringing in. Do we really need larger packs? Are we going to be using that product over the coming week? Thinking about those particularly and then how we can reduce them later on. So I mean, we've been we talk often on Life Matters about things like this and, and the issue of food pl- uh, meal planning comes up, uh, how we shop, making sure that we uh, have a clear understanding of what the recipe requires compared to what we're actually putting in the basket, things like that. Are there other factors, though, that are making it hard for people to control how much they waste? Yeah, there are. And, and, wh- and look, when I'm looking at here, I don't want us to blame consumers because consumers are largely got only got choices and those choices are what are available to us 
And most of us buy things from the supermarket. And supermarkets have a big role to play here because they've got to be actually serving products that are at, at a size that it's appropriate for the people in their area. I live near the, the centre of Melbourne and most people in our households here are one to two people per household. Yet if you go to the supermarket, portion sizes are often focused on four to six people. And therefore what you're trying to do is balance out how do I deal with that extra food, food that I'm going to do because I don't necessarily need it straight away. And that can be a real challenge. Thinking about that as well in terms of uh, food planning, it's really important and, and meal planning is really important. But we also become bored of food and therefore that can also lead to us forgetting things at the back of the fridge or even things in the bottom of the freezer. Yep, those chickpeas are going to stay in my cupboard for a very long time. <laughs> Mine's apples. Yeah. <laughs> Stewed apples. Yes. Apple crumble. Uh, Text coming in on the issue of food waste, because I think a lot of people are really worried about it or interested in it. Is food wasted if it's fed to the chooks, says Liz? Well, I guess, Liz, that would be the same issue with composting, wouldn't it? You, you're not retrieving enough of the value that's already gone into it. Uh, another says, freeze, 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 every vegetable, every leftover. Lucas is nodding. Then compost. Nothing that comes here ever leaves. Wahaha, says the text. <laughs> Though I have drawn the line at my own output in quotes one day maybe a composting loo zero waste my mantra <laughs> another person says i live in a part in an apartment and bought a composter pot which has a combined worm farm and plant pot it's great i use it every day and plan to buy another as the plants love the worms so people looking for and finding solutions our guest today is on that train too lucas parker associate professor from rmit worked on this new study from the fight food waste cooperative research center that looked a little bit at our attitudes to food waste and some of the uh, challenges and barriers and opportunities that might be around for us to prevent it. Um, Lucas, what's the relationship between packaging and food waste? I mean, we need it, but as you said before, you don't you don't want to uh, say that you know single use packaging is great. Yes, and look, I, I'm I'm against pushing any further packaging, and but what we're looking at is smarter packaging and f packaging that better informs consumers how to use or store their waste. What we know from our research is that what was what your uh, met, what your listeners also mentioned, which was about freezing. People realise that freezing is important, but actually in reality, not everybody is freezing their goods. We found that around only around a quarter of people are actually freezing their leftovers or freezing what they've prepared or freezing bread or things that they've already purchased. So when we're looking at those sorts of things, it's really important to think about packaging that actually tells people what they need to do, maybe also giving them information that is clearer. So best before is not necessarily a clear uh, uh, message for people because they may inadvertently throw out food that may be still edible. Yep, I'm pleased to hear you uh, inadvertently validate the fact that I used custard powder from 2011 the other day. <laughs> it's uh, best yeah. before. It's, I won't hold you responsible. As long as, it's, as long as it's best before within six months, maybe. Okay, good to know. <laughs> Note to self. Now, let's check in with someone who's uh, got a, a, a great understanding of packaging. Keith Chessel is on the education team at the Australian Institute of Packaging. Keith, thanks for joining this discussion. And morning, Hilary, and morning, Lucas. How does the Australian Institute of Packaging see its role in the fight against food waste? The, the AOP is the, the peak uh, industry body that does the education uh, role for the industry. And uh, we were part of the, 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 the initial group of the fight food waste and where our role was to uh, look at how packaging's role uh, will play in minimising food waste. So we recognise that uh, packaging has an important role. But so for most people, they, I don't think they think of their packaging any more than 
it's something that they dispose of when they've uh, consumed the product, but the packaging plays an important role in containing the product, making sure it gets to the consumer, protecting the product and preserving the product. And uh, so it's, it's a key factor to ensure that the food you, you buy, uh, particularly the packaged food you buy, will get to you in good condition. Well, yes, though, Keith, then... I think a lot of people are also seeing their packaging as a bit of a problem lately. And I know that the industry is taking note and, you know, occasionally you're seeing uh, cardboard punnets for strawberries and things made of coconut husk and whatever. How is the, the industry uh, approaching this issue that... that Consumers want less packaging and more sustainable packaging, but as we're hearing from you and Lucas, it's still necessary to keep food fresh. It's an important aspect. Uh, the, the the aspect I like to always highlight when because I do a lot of education with industry and uh, educational bodies in in that area is the 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 wrapped cucumber. And people say, "Why is my cucumber wrapped in plastic?" Yes. Well, the the issues for that cucumber is if uh, it, it it will dry up very quickly. So it, wrapping your cu- cucumber actually extends the life of that cucumber an extra two weeks. So it's a, a simple little things like that that the consumer says, "Why have I got a Why have I got that packaged like that when I can buy it off the shelf like that?" Uh, is a, a key aspect of ensuring that we protect that product. Well, yes, though a lot of people are also saying maybe that calls into question the idea that we should be able to keep a cucumber in our fridge for three weeks and the the food systems that we are at the mercy of, I guess. Uh, uh, Kevin, uh, sorry, Keith Chessel, I'm wondering, are there uh, anything in the works in in packaging to try and uh, address this demand from consumers that we want different packaging but still fresh food? One of the key things that we, as a ro- our role in the, with the fight food waste, was to to put some design criteria which we're providing we're provided to industry. So there's five criteria uh, that helps them to design their product to consider food waste in designing their product. And that, as I mentioned earlier, the the designing the product so it'll protect it from the, the manufacturer all the way through to the 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 home refrigerator or the cupboard making sure it's got tamper evidence on it it will protect the product from getting damaged but we also then looking at how can we extend the shelf life of that product and a lot of the packaging particularly if you look at meat packaging uh it's uh you can buy your meat from your butcher, but uh, the the colour and the protection of that product, because uh, it's a, a high energy production item, so to waste meat is not only expensive, but in, environmentally is a big issue. So the, the we use uh, vacuum packaging on that product, which can extend the product with the barriers in that another 25 days. So there are lots of benefits in, so the, the design guidelines are helping cut our manufacturers and designers to ensure that they provide reseal features so it keeps the product better it's easy opened and and as lucas mentioned before portion control we're really trying to encourage a lot of manufacturers to provide different options for different households i'm like lucas i'm a two two person household and uh, so uh, when we buy our loaf of bread we we uh, divide it up into uh, four or five slices and put it in the freezer so simple little things like that that we can be putting that information on our packaging that will help the consumer know what how to store it how to use it and how to even reuse the product again different recipe ideas so we've given we've provided guidelines for our manufacturers to to help them ensure that we design 
the packaging that will reduce food waste, but also not overpackage. And that's mm. the, the difficult balance that we've got as an industry of we've got our national food, uh, our national packaging targets of reducing our packaging needs against making sure we don't waste food. And wasting food is a, a, a far more economic issue for the country than our packaging. Well, yes. Not many people would believe that. Yeah, it's a really interesting. It's, as you say too, Keith, it's a, such a complex system. It's not just one element that we can uh, latch onto and change without looking at all the other ways that our food arrives at us and, and the kind of economic and social constraints around that. Let's have a quick chat, Keith, about the best before dates that, that we heard from Lucas can be quite confusing for cu- consumers. Is there uh, an opportunity for those to be changed on our packaging? It's a, it's a difficult balance uh, for from our food safety areas, the best before and use by date. So the use by date is uh, in, under the food standards means you shouldn't be consuming that product once it's reached its use by date. But the best before means hey, this, it's be, the, the best before date is still quite fine to eat after that date. But getting that confusion with the consumer and helping them to say, no, the best before date doesn't mean you throw it away. It means hey, it's now not its, at its peak uh, quality and freshness at that date, but it's still fine to consume. And uh, like uh, Lucas with his apples, uh, so I, the apple now isn't probably best to eat, so I'll stew it. So uh, you're, the best before date uh, is a big confusion, and we find a lot of house, households, and I know Lucas in their research, have found a lot of people are throwing food away because the best before date says it's been reached. Yeah, yeah. Someone's texted in saying, you threw away the chickpeas, they last forever. So tell me about yeah. it. They've been in the cupboard for years. I never throw anything away. Keith, it's so great to have you as part of the program and, and really good to hear that the Australian Institute of Packaging has signed on to the Fight Food Waste Cooperative Research Centre. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Keith Chessel there. We're speaking with Associate Professor Lucas uh, Parker, who's from RMIT, worked on this new study from the Cooperative Research Centre. Just before we finish up, Lucas, I wanted to ask you about a couple of uh, things that the study found that I found really interesting. So uh, participants' age influenced how they approach food waste. Yes. Uh, our older participants were more likely to be less wasteful with food, and that that it's partly explainable. I mean, if we're thinking about it, we, you know, I, I think of our parents or our grandparents. They tend to be people who are more concerned about uh, managing food and ensuring budgets and ensuring that particularly we're not wasting anything. That was something that really came strongly through our work. Yeah, my grandmother could strip a margarine container like you would believe. Same with my mum. Yeah. <laughs> but the other interesting thing, and actually I'm going to read a couple of texts because they, they go to the heart of this. Uh, someone texted in saying, you know, I, I was raised in World War II, and that's where I learnt uh, my uh, food waste reduction. Living on the pension, and I'm sure on Job Seeker, they said there's no waste. Every morsel's used and devoured. Born during World War II, we learned no waste, and that has endured. And that's from Wendy. Mm-hmm. And other says smart food waste reduction takes time to research, to learn, to shop wisely, to freeze, preserve, bulk prep, 
prep meals and grow some of your own, which stays fresh in, fresh in the garden. So many ways, but they take time and we are time poor. And I've found it fascinating that your study found that more affluent consumers were more motivated than other groups. Does that speak to that fact that it's structurally quite difficult for a lot of people to avoid food well, waste? Well, there is. And look, if you're looking at also particularly in terms of where affluent people tend to live, there's usually greater access to food that's more easily able to get and more easily to be reached. And therefore, making those decisions is not such a difficult thing because you're not talking about an hour's worth of travel to get to a supermarket and then waiting around in a supermarket and then coming back home. It's something that can be picked up a lot quicker and therefore it is an easier thing to be able to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm loath to actually say that people of higher socioeconomic groups are more concerned because I think there is a general explanation that we can see overall that Australians in general don't want to waste food. They also want to do what, the, what is right for the environment. So therefore that balance between food waste and also packaging waste is a really big thing for people to think about. Well, we've talked about some of the things that you'd like to see change. The best before dates clarified, mm. portion size dealt with, more sustainable packaging generally, obviously, mm. and things that we can do at home too. Freeze more things, plan our meals, mm. uh, be careful with our bulk buying. What else would you like to see in the bigger systems that we live under when it comes to our food? Well, my, my big thing is overall is actually looking at ways that we can reduce the amount of food that is wasted, not just from the household level, but looking at it from the from where it's coming from a farmer through to the supermarket. And therefore, all of those steps there are things that we, are largely invisible to us as customers, but therefore they're really important to us because they count for nearly two thirds of the food waste that we have in the country. And our target, if you didn't catch it from Lucas before, was to cut 50%. that waste by 50% in the next ooh, six and a half years. Good luck us. Lucas, thanks so much for coming in today. It's been absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's been wonderful to be here. Thank you. Lucas Parker, Associate Professor from RMIT, co-researcher at the Fight Food Waste Cooperative Research Centre. You heard earlier from Keith Chessel. He's on the education team for the Australian Institute of Packaging. And uh, just finish up with this text. Huge food waste starts with marketing. Removal of leaves or other edible parts from broccoli, cauliflower, fennel, etc. before it gets to the public. And that's what Lucas was telling us about. It's bigger than just us, but we do have a role to play. Up next, what does it mean to play sport on First Nations land? A look at our national obsession and how well it deals with questions of race and gender and diversity and inclusivity. This is RN. Geraldine. Julian. You know, your conversations are always so interesting and insightful. I would love to catch up. Could we maybe grab breakfast on Saturday morning? Oh, I can't. Sorry. Look, on Saturday mornings, I host Saturday Extra on RN from 7.30. I could do Sunday morning, though. I'd love to, but I've actually got Sunday Extra from 7. Oh, well. Maybe we could have a chat another time. Well, the Saturday Extra podcast's available 24-7 on the ABC Listen app, Julian. Oh, all right. I'll just do that then. Writer Ellen Van Nieven grew up playing soccer. They loved it as a place for self-expression, but it was also a site of racism and homophobia and gender policing. And that really taps into the complexity of our national relationship with sport since colonisation. Sport connects us to many social issues like equal pay, inclusivity, race relations. In their first work of non-fiction, Ellen looks at all this. It's called Personal Score. Uh, they are a multi-award-winning writer of Mananjali Yagambe and Dutch heritage. Ellen van Nieven, welcome to Life Matters. 
Hi, Hilary. How are you going? Great. Good to have you here. Now, being assigned female at birth, you found, uh, I, I read in the book, that you were introduced and invited to play particular sports, but not others. How did that play out for you? Yeah, so I grew up on Trobal country, which is the northern suburbs of Brisbane. And um, actually, my parents were encouraged to um, sign me up to, to ballet, um, and that that's a longer story, but it, it does come from me um, being born with dyspraxia, which is a, a condition that um, affected my movement and um, my muscle tone. And so the idea that was that ballet would make me um, ha- have more confidence in my movement. It, it was actually the o- other way around for me. And in terms of the 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 costumes, it was actually my brother that that got more joy in trying on the costumes than ah. I did. Um, I really did not like my time in ballet. And my brother was playing all the sports that I wanted to. Um, and so it was really um, for me to ask those questions to my parents, like, why why can't I play soccer too? And, and how did that go, having to kind of seek it out for yourself? Were there uh, barriers put in your way? They were a little bit worried. They 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 weren't sure if it was going to be a right the right fit for me. And then the other barrier was um, they wanted me to play on a on a girls team. And the nearest club where I was living, and, and I wasn't living in in a hugely rural area, like I said, um, out of suburb, out of northern, northern suburbs, Brisbane. But they had to travel about half an hour to um, the the nearest club, Sanford Rangers, that had a girls team over the mountain um and so we had those those drives with mum and dad and and whereas my brother could could play um five minutes down the road and i was fascinated to read ellen that the 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 process of playing changed your sense of yourself your mum noticed you were quite different on field to off tell us a bit about that that's true well yeah, for me, playing and, and starting off playing in the backyard with my brother and my dad, it was this beautiful feeling of having the ball at my feet. It was a form of expression and freedom, and it helped me cope with um, some of the bullying and exclusion that I was feeling um, at and experiencing at, at school. Um, so there was this element, but there was also this element of sport that made the bullying worse. Um, with the attention to the sight of the body, the comparing of bodies, the surveillance of the bodies. And I, you can see why so many young people who may have loved sport from childhood um, are turned off and turned away from negative experiences, particularly in high school. You know, they may be told, you're too feminine, you're too masculine, you're not the right skin colour, you're not the right body shape, um, you're not aggressive enough, you're too aggressive you're ugly, you're weak, and unfortunately the list goes on. And for me, um, I was, my mum did say to me um, when seeing me play um, that she was surprised at how, how aggressive I was because it did bring out this other side of me that was very determined. Um, and, you know, I did, like I said, was saying that, that sport was also a, a bit of a side of bullying for me. I was, I remember being 13 and 14 and one of the, the names that I was called from um, my classmates on the sideline, they called me Monkey Girl. And that was because um, I was hairy and also because I had darker skin than most of, the other, most of my other classmates. And so that was um, obviously something that was, was an awful experience to be called names um, and something you internalise. But also it was, it was a, something that really 
made me f feel very determined um, to to play at my best and to um, to showcase my talents, um, which you know, like I said, I wasn't a very naturally talented um, player, but I had a lot of determination and a lot of love for the game, and it took me to. Um, uh, playing for at a representative level. It's a fascinating book to read, yeah, because it, it looks at how that love of movement that kids feel and that joy of being in a moving body can be so mediated by the, the external gaze on the body. We're speaking with Ellen Van Nieven and their new book is the first work of non-fiction. It's called Personal Score and it delves into a whole range of questions and conversations that we are having and should be having in this country around sport. Professional athletes sell and often find themselves challenging mainstream views of gender and sexuality as well as other things. We've seen recently the backlash to trans players in sport. What kind of responsibilities can sports people end up feeling or, or burdens as public figures while these big cultural conversations are happening? Yeah, I think it's a really important point that um, I, I'm assuming a lot of um, professional athletes go into sport um, for a love of sport um, and then um, through you know through necessity or through um, perhaps a lack of re representation or all of the things that are going on in Australia um, they also feel like that they um, are also spokespeople um, for if, if they're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander um, that they also are representing their people um, and I think you know a case in point um, with uh, it's been 30 years um, since Nicky Winmar um, lifted his shirt and made a statement against racism um, on the field and from spectators and 30 years later you're still having um, our First Nations players getting vilified um, on the field, um, off the field, on social media and so that conversation has to continue and that burden on those those players has to continue. Yeah, in the news just today, we heard about Lance Franklin being booed repeatedly at an AFL game on Sunday. Junior Rioli's had racist comments posted about him online. What needs to change in, in I guess, sporting culture, but also those practical ways that sport is managed in this country? Uh, I mean, is it just about doing cultural sensitivity training at, at all levels of sport or is there something bigger we need to look at? Yeah, it's such a big question, Hillary. Yeah, I'm sorry I to make you have to fix everything in like seven <laughs> no, minutes. No, that's all right. No, it's good to start the conversation. I can't pretend to have all of the answers. And in some ways, this this book is, is really full of questions um, rather than answers. But I think you, you're on to something there. I think we need to look at all levels of the game. We need to look at grassroots. We need to look at... Um, uh, the really early um, engagement of children um, when they start start playing, and we need to look at the the language. We need to look at inclusion, um, and we need to educate, and, um, and and this will trickle down. So it's really not just um, an issue that's at the professional level. Um, you know, things things are constantly getting more complicated um, with you know with the introduction of social media. It's not something that our athletes would have had to um, encounter 30 years ago. Um, and so there's all of these different complexities. But for me, you know, in writing this book, I was thinking about, well, what does it mean to, to play sport on First Nations land? And really going down to thinking firstly about whose country we're playing on um, and what that history of that place is. 
And if, you know, if we all as Australians can start to learn some of that history and feel connected to that history, well, maybe that will also change how we engage with, 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 with each other and hopefully um, be kinder and more inclusive to each, towards each other. Well, yeah, reading that question made me think about the, just the physical act of putting the boot on the field or kicking mm. the ball through the air or entering the water to swim, just the way we engage with the land that we're on when we're doing those movements. And you write that, I'm quoting, Australian sport did not begin in 1788. On the contrary, sport of many kinds was played on this continent by blackfellas for thousands of years before whitefellas arrived with their supposed expertise and prowess. How does that shape your feelings about how sport happens in this country today, Ellen? Yeah, so when I started playing, like I mentioned, when I was, you know, 11 or 12, um, one of the, you know, more physical um, aspects of playing um, was that we did a lot of travel. So um, I travelled throughout, firstly, throughout South East Queensland, and my mob are from South East Queensland, um, just south of Brisbane, Mullanjali mob. Um, and so we were moving around in that space. And then when I played at a, at a higher level, we were travelling throughout Queensland. And so as I just remember these um, really early kind of these formative memories of being 11, 12, 13, 14, travelling to these places, um, not knowing where we're going. And some of the questions I was thinking about was, um, who am I? Um, where are we going? What is this place? What happened here? These are questions I was having at a, at a young age that I, I still have today, that, but I'm able to kind of put a more sophisticated understanding of country on top of that. But I think um, I was feeling uh, a sense of questioning the places that I was, was on and also feeling um, a sense of spirituality of being on these places and, and like you said, putting boot to turf, um, being on, on the ground is very... It's a very sp- spiritual act to um, to play sport, um, to to walk on country, to run, to swim. These are acts that our ancestors have been doing for hundreds of years, and it connects us to that history. Um, so I think, and that another um, piece of wisdom that came to me um, later on was um, the idea that a lot of our uh, sporting fields, um, particularly in in Southeast Queensland, where the research, most of my research was was happening, and most of my conversations and learning and and understanding um, as a black fellow from Southeast Queensland were were occurring. Was that a lot of our sporting fields um, are originally First Nations ceremony sites, um, and so that that happened because these are places that were already cleared of trees um, for ceremony. And so um, when the whitefellas came, it, they were very easy, easily converted into sporting fields that we still use today. And so that was a really profound um, understanding, that uh, profound insight that I, that I learned, um, as well as just observing the sensitivity in which um, our, our blackfella athletes uh, perform and, and um, engage with country when they compete. So all of that stuff was coming together in, in, in thinking about writing this book and, and hopefully um, making some sense and, and making some drawing some connections that will inspire other people to make their own connections. Wow, that certainly throws the whole kind of language around sport being sacred in Australia into a new light, doesn't it? I'm speaking with Ellen Van Nieven. Their new book is called Personal Score, and it's, as as they say, a... a 
bunch of questions around a set of very big ideas and a lot of research about how sport has happened historically and, and in the present day in this country. Ellen, I was fascinated when you observed that many First Nations sports are non-competitive, whereas European sports are almost exclusively competitive and you, you make connections between the violent language that we use to describe war and sports, beat, flog, smash, attack, destroy. Could sport be done differently in this country, is it, is it, or is it, you know, is it the way we play or the kinds of sport that we're playing? Such a good question, Hilary. And I'll circle back to, you know, First Nations sports, um, tra- you know, traditional sports, um, which I, I have been learning about and uh, particularly drew, drew on the Australian Sports Commission's research into that. There's, there's so many sports that are, on, you know, on the website and that people can, can Google and, and learn about. And I was, they're, they're beautiful sports um, that are, are really have a really sense, sensitive engagement to country. They're about careful land. They're about sustainability. They're, they're, they, they encourage gender equality because these sports can be played by everyone. Um, and they're about connection and uh, creating stronger communities rather than um, dividing communities. Um, so I thought um, as you, you you mentioned, I thought that that was such a stark contrast to some of the language that I observe um, when I'm walking past a school um, where children are, are really encouraged to, to battle each other um, and uh, humiliate each other. So, And a lot of early experiences that turn young people off sport are because of um, humiliation um, and sh- sense of shame and guilt. So... I think we can definitely do better um, as a nation to create more inclusive environments for children when when they're starting off to play sport at school, and I think that can that can really have a trickle down um, approach um, to because you know sport is is wonderful. It's the best and the worst of us. It's a conversation starter in this country, and it really has so it it has um, made made so much of our lives better um, and but for a select few it has made made their lives worse so I think we can really we can really do better and, and it's such a there's so much potential for sport to be more inclusive more sensitive and more uh, sustainable and it is fascinating then to see the, the questions you raise, Ellen, and the preoccupations culturally we have around gender and sport, for example, play out around the women's leagues. Much more to talk about on another occasion. Ellen Van Nieven, thank you so much for speaking with us today on Life Matters. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Award-winning writer of Mananjali, Yagambe and Dutch Heritage, Ellen Van Nieven there, speaking about their new book, Personal Score. It's out now. How much do you need to squeeze into the early morning hours to be truly successful or optimised or something? There are some strong opinions for and against morning routines on social media. We will run the science filter over them next. New from ABC Books. All in the Mind, the RN program exploring our minds and behaviour is now a book. The brain is perhaps the most important organ in our body, and yet in many ways it remains unfathomable to us. Join longtime former host Lynn Malcolm as she reveals transformative stories from the forefront of neuroscience. Does my brain really have the power to change itself? All in the Mind, book and audiobook available in bookstores and online. Is this you?
get up at 5am, cold water swim, meditation, write a bit of your novel, update your share portfolio, eat a perfectly balanced breakfast, all before clocking on. It is not me. Highly successful types have been trumpeting the power of a morning routine for years, but now, in the time-honoured narrative arc of backlashes, people are pushing back on social media and swearing by sleep-ins, not a gratitude journal to be seen. So are there any benefits to a morning routine? Will it change your life? I'd love to hear if you've got a morning routine that you swear by, or maybe you're pushing back and it's all fleecy pants and cereal for lunch. Associate Professor Lauren Rosewarn is a social scientist at the University of Melbourne. Lauren, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for having me, Hilary. And Dr Addie Wooden is a clinical psychologist and the CEO of Smiling Mind, a mindfulness meditation app. Addie, welcome. Thank you. Lauren Rosewan, I'll start with you. Let's let's talk about what we're talking about first. We're seeing these trends on social media like the five to nine before the nine to five, so those hours before you clock on, and hashtags like that girl lifestyle, people posting their morning routines on the road to being their best selves. Why are people becoming obsessed with watching these to the tune of billions of views? Yeah, there's a lot of history of newspaper articles sort of documenting the, you know, success stories of leaders and, you know, noting what they do in the morning. And so there's a long history of this idea that being super, super productive and starting your day really early means you'll, you know, kick more goals or whatever metaphor you like. And I think that's translated into these social media videos in part, you know, where you're seeing people do these complicated, you know, morning rituals It might involve journalism makeup routine, eating, exercise, etc. And I think that there is an appeal for audiences in this idea that they may learn something as well as that more sort of passive idea of simply watching content that looks into a life that is very different from our own. Yeah, so it's not just voyeuristic, but it's a bit voyeuristic. The makeup thing's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm trying to work out if it's about being successful in, in work in some productivity sense or broader well-being i mean does makeup help you hit the boardroom and i think it's a bit complicated because a lot of these content creators that is their job is creating content so it's not as though a lot of these people are successful in other fields they're successful at delivering you the content that you're watching at home perhaps while you're eating the bowl of cocoa pops now i think that you could you know there is some research about you know um fake it till you make it looking good makes you feel good etc i hate all of that sort of hokey self-help stuff but some people buy into it but i think there is that perception perception that makeup is part of that even if in fact the content creator is using makeup likely because that's actually something that they're drawing income from in the sense that these are you know often sponsorship arrangements you know that they're using that lipstick because that's actually how they get money yeah somewhere a tongue scraping company is making a mozza off these videos (laughs) someone's texted in saying oh truly successful people write three articles about morning routines before breakfast from albert einstein (laughs) Uh, Addie, do you really need to get up at 4.30am to be successful? It feels a bit like the four Yorkshiremen. Get up four hours before I go to bed. Yeah, I... I, I think there's a lot of myth out there, isn't there, around, you know, what makes the best productive day. The thing to remember is we're all different. All humans are built differently. We function differently. Things help us perform better in different ways. So there's no, and, and I hate to say this, but there's no clear answer on what is the best approach. I think you have to find what is right for you and you have to find the things that motivate you to get up and to 
be productive in whatever way you want to be. We all look at product productivity in a different way as well. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, I know science has things to say about uh, when your waking time should be, that a regular waking time is good, but is there nothing it can tell us about how psychologically it is for us to have that kind of uh, time before the the uh, structured routines of the day kick in, our own personalised routine, it, whether we know that's good for us or not? Yeah, there is some evidence to say that having a routine in the morning is good for us. We know that if um, we can get our blood pumping and do some exercise that it, set, it sets a chain of events in terms of our hormonal balance uh, and that can be good for our energy levels for the rest of the day. And we also know that there's a little bit of research that looks at our mood in the morning when we wake up and there's always that, you know, you got up on the wrong side of the bed kind of myth as well. But in fact, there is some evidence behind the fact that our mood in the morning can predict the rest of the mood across the day but there are things you can do to change that mood in the morning as well I think getting stuck on the time of day that you have to wake up and do these things is probably the sticking point Um, having a routine uh, we know can be really helpful it helps us feel a sense of control in our life and that can build our sense of happiness and satisfaction with life Um, but you don't have to be stuck on exactly that 4am rise it could be a a 6am rise or a a 7am rise Any routine in the morning will be helpful, um, whatever time works for you. And we also know there's differences in people's um, sleep patterns as well, and that plays a a really big role. Yeah, apparently Mark Wahlberg gets up at 2.30 in the morning and does a whole bunch of things. By 9.30, he's inside a cryotherapy chamber, icing his muscles after an early morning golf outing. Don't try this at home, kids. We're speaking with Dr Addie Wooten, who's a clinical psychologist and CEO of Smiling Mind, a mindfulness meditation app, which is probably about as far as you can get from... Mark Wahlberg's routine, and Associate Professor Lauren Rosewarn, who's a social scientist at the University of Melbourne, about this cultural phenomenon of not morning routines, but people's obsession with morning routines, watching other people's little videos of the the complicated and rigid steps, which often involve a smoothie of some kind, artfully arranged. Lauren, can a strict or complicated morning routine in this context be performative? And, And what is it saying about us? Yeah, well, it's absolutely performative in the sense that the people who are making these videos, that's their income stream. So, of course, there's something, you know, they're selling us a product. They're selling their lifestyle to us, basically. This is where we get that term, social media influencers. Invariably, their influence comes from the fact that they've got a lifestyle that audiences are supposed to either aspire to or at least find interesting enough to watch. And I think like most things on social media, there has to be an element of performance to it because otherwise audiences are not going to find it interesting enough to watch. You know, if we just left a camera on the wall at our own homes, we're not going to largely be producing enough content that would generate an audience. But these people, I mean, how how is the camera on them when they're waking up in the morning? Who set the camera up? Is this the boyfriend that's done this? <laughs> is this the girlfriend? There's a lot of questions here that I've got to ask, but you have to, as an audience member, have some level of suspension of disbelief because otherwise you really will be, like I do, ask too many questions of what's going on here. Yeah, like why does their hair look so amazing? Yeah, why do they have (laughs) lipstick on? Did they sleep in it? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Well, Addie, I mean, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Is there a problem with us looking at all these morning routine videos, even if it's pure voyeurism for us, and comparing the way we roll out of bed to others? Yeah, it's, it can be a real problem for lots of people. I think that uh, comparison mentality where we're comparing ourselves to other people and often that leads down a pathway of 
criticism of ourselves can be a real problem. Um, I think uh, Lauren is absolutely right. There's huge fun and entertainment in watching some of those videos, but if it goes too far and you end up comparing those videos with your actual life, you do have to ask those questions of, you know, is it actually real or how fake are those videos? Like that point of how, how many of us get up and have perfectly styled hair and, ma and perfect makeup is, you know, pretty much zero unless we're getting up well before we put the video camera on. Um, so it, it can be a real problem. And I think the thing for us to remember as humans is that we have to find the, the thing that works for us. And I've said that before. Um, I think that's really important that we are all very different. And what works for one person is not necessarily going to work for another person. Well, yeah, for example, if you've got kids and, and or a partner, the idea of getting up at 5am is just ridiculous. No one gets up by choice earlier than the kids do. Well, no, that's not true. Some people do. Unless you've got little kids. Well, yeah, by choice, I'm thinking. Yeah, exactly. You're not going to be getting in into an ice bath at 3am in order to chat to them at 5. What about a sustainable morning routine? How can we make things sustainable, you know, if we don't want to be falling asleep at 8pm and missing out on the time with our families in the evening? Yeah, well, I think that's a really good place to start. Like, think about your sleep pattern and what you need from sleep in order to feel well-rested and good the next day. So think about what time do you need to go to bed to make sure that you've got that seven, maybe eight hours of sleep um, across the night, good quality sleep. Uh, and then have a think about what time that means you can get up and how much time you can you can spare in the morning. If you have got kids, you have to get off to school. It can be pretty busy, can't it? So... How do you set some time so that you are building a routine that actually supports your mental well-being, your outlook on the day, um, gives you some focus time, if at all possible? For some families, that isn't possible. So, you know, finding the right balance is really important. Um, I think keeping things realistic. So don't set expectations for yourself that mirror those uh, influences on, on Instagram. Look at what is realistic for you? How can you set out, out a program for yourself that you know will work? And it might be getting up 10 minutes early and doing some yoga stretches. And that might be all you do in the morning before everyone else gets up and you have breakfast and rush everyone off to work and school. But doing one thing like that intentionally and setting some really clear, concrete goals for yourself can be what we need to feel satisfied and motivated, and that can build a, a healthy routine. Well, if you're a night owl, though, Addie, uh, do you have tips for people who just, you know, t even 10 minutes before the alarm goes off would be horrific? Really horrific, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so again, I think those night owls need to have a think about their their structure, when do they go to sleep and and how late can they sleep? We know that it's it's real, the difference between people who have a circadian rhythm that works later and those that work earlier. Uh, so trying to organise your day around that, you know, can you negotiate to, to come into work at 10 o'clock instead of 9 o'clock so you have a bit more time in the morning um, to, to wake up? Um, but maybe for night hours, it's actually thinking about a nighttime uh, ritual or set of habits or routine that you can use to look after yourself and to make sure you get a good night's sleep. It may not necessarily have to be the morning routine that sets you up for the day. For night hours, it could actually be a nighttime routine. Yeah. And Lauren Rosewarn, with every internet trend comes the equal and opposite trend. How much pushback are we seeing now to these full-on morning routines? Is this like the, the quiet quitting trend or rejecting productivity in a sense? 
Yeah, and there is a trend towards people making spoof videos of these, you know, morning rituals where they're, you know, doing a line of cocaine, for example, (laughs) and other things that perhaps aren't optimal. But I like those pushbacks because I think it also reminds us humans aren't machines and we're also, we need to be more than how productive we are because there's lots of things that affect productivity, not only children, mental health, etc. And that idea of judging our value as humans just by how much we output, I think is a problem. So I like to see that pushback of people who are just saying, no, nah, I'm not buying into this. Well, yeah, is it a kind of bigger questioning too of what constitutes success or, or you know, a good life? Yeah, and that idea of, you know, measuring your worth as a person by how many words you put out or how many calories that you burn, that is a lot of pressure. And that I think a lot of us relate to that idea of am I doing enough? And I think that's partly, you know, capitalist culture that is measuring output as somehow the sole determinant for are we a successful person as opposed to are we a good person or are we other kinds of good qualities beyond just how much we generate? Well, on that, I'm going to leave you with Princess Margaret's fabled morning routine and no judgment about whether or not she's a good or useful person, but breakfast in bed, two hours of reading the papers and smoking, bath, hair and makeup, and then vodka. So, you know, it takes all kinds. Dr. Addie Wooden, Associate Professor Lauren Rosewarne, thanks so much for being part of this discussion. Thanks, Hilary. Lauren Rosevorn is a social scientist at the University of Melbourne and great value for a chat. Dr. Addie Wooden is a clinical psychologist and CEO of Smiling Mind, which is a mindfulness meditation app. Some really useful perspectives there on some of the stuff we see on social media. On our Facebook page, it was mainly people trolling us with their post-retirement routines, which were very relaxed. There are a lot of cups of tea in bed with Wordle and pets. Jim says, finish bedside drink, have a pee, brew coffee, toast bread, marmalade or Vegemite, strap on guitar and noodle to jam tracks. Kate just says no. Get up, put clothes on, walk out the door. I'm not into superstitious I have to's. And uh, my morning routine says one is at least two coffees and listening to the radio. I salute you. When did we stop being individuals, says one text. Why are people so obsessed with sharing the minutiae of life and worse, looking at that stuff? There's a whole big wide world out there that needs our attention. It needs more people to live in it, not a device. Can we please ban lifestyle magazines, influencers, celebrities? Spoiler alert, they don't matter. Live our own lives, not someone else's. Find out what works for us. I would say good luck with that project. It is huge. On food waste, which was a huge issue for you, I buy the fruit and veggie in season to save money. Also, shop from the cupboard, in quote marks. I use everything, says another text. If it's looking sad, even yellowish or floppy, I throw it in a curry, a stew, in the blender for burgers. Bread gets whizzed and put in the freezer as breadcrumbs. I'm not set on fixed food or set recipes, compost and chooks as well. And another says, Rosemary says, when I was 17, I moved to the Big Smoke for study and I lived with my grandma, my grandmother. She had a young male boarder also studying who threw away the fruit she gave him for lunch. She discovered it hidden in the backyard and served it up as fruit salad in the evening meal. He ate it. There's been an enormous amount of attention on the federal budget this year. The big question on most lips, will it help with the huge cost of living pressures that are squeezing so many of us? On our next episode, we'll look at the budget through a generational lens. Peter Martin has been a Treasury official, an economics editor of a major daily and an economics and public policy academic. And Eliza Littleton will join us from the Australia Institute. Can't wait to dive into this year's budget with you on Life Matters.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.